welcome to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa Robinson. I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? I'm good. Good. Yeah, surviving yeah. With October. I am. I'm enjoying the crisp weather. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty, it's still relatively yeah. warm. Oh, and um, Objection to the Rule was the number one talk show on Radio Free Brooklyn in September. Woo! Congratulations, ladies. Yeah. Yeah. We've come a long way. <laughs> Absolutely. That was great. Thank you, everybody, for listening and chiming in and uh, supporting the show. We really appreciate the love. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. We really enjoy putting the show together. So um, it means a lot that people tune in to listen. Absolutely. So this week, we'll be talking about the COVID protests in the Hasidic communities in NYC. Uh, protests and police brutality in Nigeria, some good news from the World Food Program, and a little bit about Miss Amy Coney Barnett. So let's kick it off today's episode with our local news. Emily, what do you have for us today? Yeah, so I have a, it's a little bit of a long <laughs> story, but um, I think it's it's really interesting and important. So uh, I'm just going to dive right in. Bear with me. Um so the story comes from a bunch of different resources, including an October 8th New York Times article by Liam Stack and Joseph Goldstein titled uh, How a Virus Surge Among Orthodox Jews Became a Crisis for New York and subtitled New York City Had Been Holding Off a Second Wave, But an Uptick in Cases in Brooklyn and Queens Now Threatens to Bring One On. The article explains that, quote, for decades, tightly knit Hasidic and other ultra-Orthodox Jewish, Jewish sects sects have thrived in the city and the surrounding suburbs while warding off many aspects of the modern world. Now they are facing unwelcome scrutiny over whether the virus is spreading because some people in these insular communities are reluctant to embrace public health practices and have become susceptible to misinformation, including from President Trump. After spikes of cases in those neighborhoods, Governor Cuomo, quote, ordered the first major retrenchment of the city's recovery from a pandemic that has killed more than 20,000 residents. Mr. Cuomo imposed a shutdown of schools and non-essential business in parts of Brooklyn and Queens, as well as in sections of Rockland and Orange um, counties that have also have sizable populations of Orthodox Jewish residents. Uh, the regulations made it clear that there were definite concerns over crowding into synagogues, with gatherings at houses of worship in these areas limited to 10 people. Quote, the governor's order uh, touched off a fierce backlash in Orthodox neighborhoods, including protests uh, on Tuesday night, I think that's Tuesday of last week, in Borough Park, and an attack on a well-known Jewish journalist. Uh, the Times article also explains that misinformation can spread in these neighborhoods, quote, because people tend to avoid the internet and few families own televisions. Many get their news from conservative talk radio, Yiddish publications with an often conservative bent, or a meme shared via WhatsApp. Interesting. Um, so, okay, I want to preface the rest of this story by saying that I am not here to defend anti-COVID restriction protests. I think I've made it clear that I take um, the pandemic and COVID and diseases in general pretty seriously on this show. Um, and I'm also not here to say that large indoor gatherings of people for religious ceremonies during a pandemic is a good idea. I think it's dangerous. Um, what I do want to say is that I'm not just concerned about a rise in COVID cases. Uh, as a Jewish person, I'm also concerned about how anti-Semitism can 
grow around all of this and probably will if it hasn't already. So the first thing that sort of made me think that that could happen or would happen um, sort of shook me up a little bit was that an old coworker of mine who's not Jewish posted um, on her Instagram story some TV footage of the protests going on in the Orthodox neighborhoods. And she said a caption that I'm paraphrasing because I don't quite remember the exact wording, but something to the idea of like, I've had it with these Hasidic Jews or like if the numbers go up, I swear I'm, I have had it. Um, and if you're not seeing that, why that's troublesome, like just replace the words Hasidic Jews with like any other minority and sort of think about how icky that feels to have that sort of phrase out there, those words. Um, an October 14th article on HeyAlma.com by Olivia Scher. Uh, titled It's Terrifying to be Orthodox in New York City Right Now, shows this even more clearly. She writes, quote, As a modern Orthodox New Yorker right now, I am terrified. This week as I was walking to my apartment in the East Village, I heard a conversation going on behind me. My neighborhood is going to shut down because of the dirty Jews that live there. The woman's voice was filled with hatred. And in that moment, I could feel the full ramifications of the upticks in coronavirus positivity rates in certain neighborhoods of New York. Uh, the author goes on to explain that it, that in her, quote, particular Orthodox community, everyone wears a mask. Everyone wears masks. Throughout the high holidays, we had RSVP-only outdoor services where masking was required. And she closes the article by writing, quote, placing the blame for rising rates on an already vulnerable population won't prevent a second wave, but I fear it will ensure mo more Jews die. We have a long time before we see the end of this pandemic. I hope the mayor and other New York City leaders see that generalizing Orthodox Jews puts my community in harm's way. And indeed, leaders have referred to religious Jewish communities homogeneously uh, when they're not homogenous. There's a lot of different groups out there, um, some more visible than others, some quite visible. Um, and there's historical uh, historical precedent for Jews being scapegoated for pandemics. The Instagram account at Jewish Perspective put together a great infographic dealing um, detailing all of this, which is what got me on the following research, got me going on it. Um, a 2009 New York Times article titled Finding a Scapegoat When Epidemics Strike explains with regard to the Black Death, quote, in medieval Europe, Jews were blamed so often and so viciously that it is surprising it was not called the Jewish death. During the pandemic's peak in Europe from 1348 to 1351, more than 200 Jewish communities were wiped out, their inhabitants accused of spreading contagion or poisoning wells. The article continues, quote, Dr. Martin J. Blazer, a historian who is chairman of medicine at New York University's medical school, offers an intriguing hypothesis for why Jews became scapegoats in the Black Death. They were largely spared in comparison with other groups because grain was removed from their houses for Passover, discouraging the rats that spread the disease. The plague peaked in spring around Passover. In an article from May of this year on Forward.com titled, Pandemics Have Always Incited Anti-Semitism, here's the history you need to know, uh, details a typhus outbreak in New York City. Quote, in 1892, 200 people on the Lower East Side died of typhus. Almost all the dead were Russian Jewish immigrants who had arrived on January 30th of that year in steerage on the SS Massilia, a French steamship. The article explains that not just the sick, but healthy Russian Jewish passengers of the ship and many of their contacts were rounded up and quarantined on North Brother Island. 
However, quote, of the Massilia's passengers, only Jews were forced into quarantine. Neither cabin class passengers um, nor the 470 Italians in steerage were detained. Out of the 1,200 quarantined Jews, uh, 1,150 never showed any signs of typhus. So I'd like to close with some great points from the Jewish perspective Instagram account post I mentioned earlier. Um, quote, it's not anti-Semitic to acknowledge high infection rates, but it is anti-Semitic to an- end the narrative there. And quote, there is no defense for those who don't wear masks, but not all Jews are accountable for the actions of some Jews. If anything, hotspots overlap with Trump supporters who literally take their cues from an anti-masker. So in conclusion, please wear a mask and please don't give in to the impulse to blame, quote, the Jews if the COVID numbers continue to rise. Yeah, like I did see some of those clips. I actually got I got rid of the Citizen app because it was making my nerves bad. But I kept seeing these things like fire a bunch of people gather and I didn't know what was going on. And then I found out the next day that it was, I don't live very far from where some of those protests were happening. And that's what all the alerts were about. It was pretty, I was shocked to see it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do want to say too, like I, it made me mad. Like it made me mad in a lot of ways because it made me mad for two reasons. One, because, um, anti-mask protests make me mad just like it's gonna save (laughs) lives to just wear a mask and two because I was I I me and my I had a relative and I were texting briefly about it just like it's this is gonna bring up a bunch of anti-semitism we just as as Jews like we're not I'm not Hasidic or ultra-orthodox um and they're the most visible Jews in the U.S. really right you see you there's certain dresses dress codes and things that you look at a Hasidic person, you know, they're Jewish and it's, um, it's scary to kind of know that people are going to start blaming the Jews because of a really visible group going around doing that as a Jewish person. Can I ask you as, um, yeah, because I feel like there's a lot of conflation that happens. Like when we talked about at the, off the top, Teresa mentioned Mm -hmm. like the Hasidic community, but then one of the people you quoted is Orthodox. So it's my understanding, like all Hasidic people are a form of Orthodox, but not everyone who's Orthodox is Hasidic. Is that right? Or yes. So I, I'm not an expert on the super, super, like the ultra Orthodox and Hasidic communities. But, um, so my grandpa, for example, was raised Orthodox, which me, he, it, he was not in, he like, you know, he got a normal education. He, I, he might've worn a yarmulke, a yarmulke growing up. I'm actually, I don't remember seeing him in photos from that time with that, but, um, he, they ate kosher at home. They went to synagogue on Fridays. It was just the degree to which they followed the rules. Then there's a level that you move beyond that. That's a much more, um, I, they, I saw the word insular a lot and it's, um, the communities that are the most visible that, they, they send their students, their, their children to yeshivas where um, they really get a almost, I mean, it's a very little secular education based on my understanding. And again, I don't want to like marginalize a group that I'm not a part of by like talking like I know a lot about it. But um, yeah, it's, it's a, there's, there's different levels of Judaism and then there's ultra Orthodox and Hasidic, but then even within those communities, there's a lot of different sects. Um, they're not just the Hasidic Jews are not just one group. 
I was reading somewhere that there's like, oh, what was the number? There's like 12 different Hasidic groups that live in New York. Um, so even within the, like that, like level of Judaism, like it's not homogenous at all. That's and, a good point too. Yeah. Also, because I think that, um, like I'm a person that's not from New York, I'm from Ohio and we don't really have a lot of visible, mm-hmm. you know, ultra Orthodox or ultra Orthodox Hasidic Jewish communities. I grew mm-hmm. up with Jewish friends that I went to high school with, but, um, they had some Jewish practices, that I know of, but they, it wasn't visible. It wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, and if they were a part of a community, I was unaware of it. You know right. what I mean? So yeah. it's good to kind of understand that and also unpack that, you know, you can't just put a blanket statement over a culture. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think a lot of people do that because they're unaware um, and they really don't understand. But I mean, there's, there's gatherings of all types of different religious sectors, you know, that could cause the spikes. I think that they're coming from, these particular neighborhoods and the way that it's been kind of um, broadcasted in the news has also given it kind of a real negative spin as well and added to the hatred, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of, I was reading about, about the media spin on it um, as well. Like, I mean, you can't argue with numbers, numbers are spiking and they correlate to certain religious communities and around certain holidays where large indoor gatherings might've happened like that that just logically makes sense. But I was reading somewhere that like the governor used a photo of a Jewish funeral from like 2006. That just shows like a big group of, of ultra Orthodox Jews without wearing masks, but like it wasn't from this year, like stuff like, and I mean, I, the photo was deleted if it was accurate. Like I, I was just seeing that multiple times that it's just like, and like people with like apparently paparazzi or like in the neighborhood, like, waiting to get a photo of an unmasked like Hasidic person on the street to like add to the stories of that happening as much as it is. Um, so yeah, which, which doesn't mean it's not happening, but it's also like, just be aware that with marginalized communities across the spectrum, there's people who want to cast it in a light that's like based on their own biases I guess misunderstanding sometimes. Yeah, it's really there was also some footage of um he I don't know if he was Hasidic or Orthodox, but they were it was a large group of visibly Jewish New Yorkers that were against the restrictions on meeting and he was calling the mayor's wife like a lot of anti black slurs and like seeing footage of people that are visibly Jewish marching with like all these Trump signs and stuff. It really, for me, it was so odd because I was thinking about Charlottesville and what a lot of those people were chanting. And I'm like, how are you, like there's so many anti-Semitic people that support the president right now. So seeing like this, this like support for that sort of candidate was really, it was off. It was very shocking to me because I'm like, there are people that support the current administration that are probably happy because they have a problem with Jewish people that these numbers are going up. So it's, it's such a complicated like issue where it is, it's not good like for these numbers to be happening, but 
it's almost like if you have people that are pointing out like this needs to stop, like there are some individuals that will take that as like they're persecuting us by telling us not to get together. And it just kind of reinforces this doubling down amongst certain specific like people. Like it's clearly not everybody, but there ha there's enough people where like they're protesting in anger against something that's meant to keep you safe. You know, I just, I don't really know what the solution is other than to like, whoever is leading these types of protests, like they have to be made to understand, like you're only hurting your own community. Starting to unpack the Hasidic, like the, so I, I remember like seeing a map when Trump won in 2016 of the parts of New York city that went red for Trump. And it was like, I, it was Staten Island. And then it was like certain Hasidic communities and like wall street. Those were like the red like zones I remember. And I, it was, there's a lot to unpack about like the voting rates for Trump in that group. And again, like trying not to say like all the Hasidic Jews like vote for Trump. Cause that's what we've been talking about here is like, you can't just generalize right, everyone right. that way. But, um, but yeah, no, like there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I don't know. I don't think we have the time right now to, but, um, yeah, like, and you know, it's also, I want to say too, like, there's a lot of internal, like, as like a secular Jew, there's like, I grew up with a lot of other secular Jews, like talking about the Hasidic community and like a, like a, with animosity there. And like a lot of stuff too, where like, you know, phrases like they don't see me as a real Jew, like that sort of thing happening. So there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. Like, you know, I'm Jewish and, and they're Jewish, but like, the community is not homogenous at all <laughs> of Jews in America, Jews in the world. Um, and it's really complicated and people who try and simplify it or group everyone together. Um, don't do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for bringing that story. That was a good dialogue. Definitely a good place to talk about it. Um, here on the show. And we're going to jump right into our first music break. Uh, we have a nice mix of music for you today. The first track is a dope jazz record entitled Liberated. Um, it's an instrumental project by a German producer called The Breed and a guitarist, Richard Holdsman. The track combines a flavor of Mexican and Latin folk music, and it's kind of groovy and sort of lo-fo jazz-ish. So check it out. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And this week I have the national news. So I'm calling this segment, What's the 411 with Amy Coney Barrett? <laughs> uh, information for this segment came from New York Times, Huffington Post, and CNN. So who is Judge Barrett? Currently, she serves as the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals on the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals and has faced the last four days of confirmation hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee this week for a shot at a seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, She lives in Indiana and is favored by social conservatives due to her records on issues like abortion and gay marriage. She's Catholic, but says her faith will not influence her legal opinions. Uh, She's been labeled as an originalist, which means interpreting U.S. Constitution as authors intended and not moving with the times. Uh, She has seven children, two of whom she adopted from Haiti. Um, She is a long-term academic, appeals court, and a mother, um, and a hot favorite for this seat. Donald Trump has reportedly been saving her uh, for the moment when elderly Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and the vacancy arose. And it just took him over a week to fast-track her. She's 48 years old, and um, she's quite conservative. So this week... Throughout the confirmation process, Democrats have sought to put a spotlight on the Affordable Care Act case that will come before the Supreme Court on November 10th, one week after Election Day. They have cited fears that the justice appointed by Trump will threaten the fate of the law, as well as protections for those with pre-existing conditions. The lawsuit, which is supported by the Trump administration, argues that because of individuals, the individual mandate was invalidated by Congress, the entire law should be dismantled. Today was the final day of the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Judge Barrett. And it began with a partisan brawl as the Senate Senate Republicans plowed past Democratic objections, forced through a motion to schedule a committee vote on her nomination next week. So this meant that they ignored the committee rules that require at least two members of the minority party to present to conduct business. Still with Republicans in majority, the panel approved Mr. Graham's motion, setting the vote for the nomination for October 22nd at 1 p.m. If the committee approves the nomination at that point, the full Senate will vote a few days later, as soon as October 26th, one week before Election Day. So, yeah, this is um, quite an interesting moment because they're trying to push her through the Supreme, up to the Supreme Court before the election so they can still have some sort of uh, control there. I've In a lot of the articles that I read, they were saying that at this point they feel that Trump may lose and this may be their only choice to kind of still have some control um, over this uh, major section of our government. Have any, have you guys watched any of the, the hearings this week or uh, have any feedback on, on how they drilled her down? I have... I have not. I've only seen some clips and what I've seen, I think, is very disturbing from. But I haven't been watching faithfully okay. like the entire yeah, proceedings. Same. I uh, I can't. I don't know. The whole thing feels like it shouldn't be happening. You yeah. know, after what happened with Merrick Garland under Obama, um, especially. Yeah. It's just very hypocritical. But I saw something today where they asked her, what are the five protection? What are the five? Uh, things protected under the First Amendment, and she she couldn't name all five. She like wow. can only come up with four. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and I, I'd also like to point out that there's a 
and this is like a larger issue that I have with a lot of people that are sort of incredulous at, oh, like so-and-so, they're so unintelligent, like they don't know how to speak. She didn't even know she was stumbling over her answer. And it's like, I think there's too many people underestimate how calculated and determined these people are to enact extremely puritanical, conservative, like anti-every-human-right type legislation, but they camouflage it with this um, exterior that's like, oh, she's fumbling for her answer, like she's saying that she doesn't know how she can't really answer. She already knows what the answer to the question would be, but knows that it would be extremely controversial to be saying that openly out loud. So it's just the whole thing is just it's disgusting that she even got to this point with the little bit of experience that she has. She seems like she wants a full blown theocracy. I'm sick of how these people are using the fact that she adopted two black children from Haiti like that's some sort of racism shield. It's absolutely not. And I'm worried for her children. It's very it's all terrible. You know, and I I really hope that anyone that's still naive to just how determined these people are will open their eyes that her worldview is the world that they want us all to be living in. So that's my rant. Sorry, my bad. But sorry, I loved bad, it. But. Um, you hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. Um, I and and her the the racism shield thing too is she, I was reading somewhere that she there was a case she was presiding over about uh, a black man who. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And she argued that, or she, she said that the, just the use of the N word alone doesn't prove a hostile environment. Yeah. Like she the was use, asking like, them to prove how it made the hostile, yeah. how it made the environment hostile for that person. Like Are you, she's got to be kidding me there. Insane. Like yeah. the upside down. Yeah, she, she's a wet dream for all of the worst people in this society that want to hold on to power that they should have never had, but they're accustomed to having and they feel that they're losing their grip on it. So from this executive order that's stopping people from talking about white supremacy and equity and diversity and all of this to someone who's making these complete like head in the ass statements about, oh, it's not really hostile for someone to call you the worst slur that we have in our language. It's really just, it's such an assault on human decency, human rights for everybody by, you know, these these decrepit people that are so worried about losing their place in the world that they never should have had. Absolutely. Well, on fire. Oh I my see. Gosh. Absolutely. Oh. So glad you're here, Jasmine. <laughs> yeah, I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm afraid. I'm anxious. It's horrible. Like, this is really, you know, and I'm sick of people that treat it like it's some kind of fucking game or like they're still naive about what these people envision. Like, we talked about Pence earlier, you know, what how he's responsible for an outbreak in his home state. And now look at what position he's in. God knows if something were to happen, we have a massive outbreak going on right now. We know he wouldn't do anything to help it. Like it's all this shit is so life and death. And to have it 
play out like it's some type of board game it's absolutely mind-blowing yeah and and the use of like the phrase like politics too like the way that i mean it happens on i guess on both sides depending on how you look at it and on like on both sides of the aisle in like congress but like the the dismissal of real concerns over like quote playing politics really does feel like they're trying to turn life and death situations into a game jasmine like you it it's enraging um you're absolutely right well you know it can never win when they can make the rules up as they go which is pretty much what these people do. They pretty much make the rules and make people abide by them the much as much as they can. So um, you're right. It is playing out like some board game. I do feel like we're just kind of watching this shit unfold that they already had planned out for so long. And um, I definitely, yeah, I mean, I'm, we already know what's going to happen, unfortunately. So yeah. And it, we like already a, know what's gonna happen. It's like it feels like a kangaroo court. Like, why are we even? Why is anyone pretending it matters that they're having this like deposition? Right? Like, yeah, absolutely. It, and that's what's infuriating too. It's like, why don't why don't you just give up the pretense and just fuck like appoint her without talking to her since you already know what you want to do? Because it doesn't matter what she says, and she knows it too. You know what? Because it's entertainment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, after yeah. Kavanaugh, absolutely. Please. You know, and it's like a lot of these people on both sides of the aisle, like when we talk about, oh, it's like a game, I think because for a lot of these people, like they are at a point in their life chronologically and also financially and their class where they will be fine regardless. So even though they ostensibly are supposed to be, you know, on the left, like more so representing disenfranchised, more marginalized, more progressive people they themselves are not often members of those groups where like they would be under the boot of these types of policies. So it's like they have the luxury of treating it like it's all about being civil and having the appearance of following rules because it's about, it, it is a game to them. Nothing in their life is going to substantially change no matter what happens. It's all the rest of us that have to deal with it. And seeing that incongruity is very upsetting, you know, and I I imagine it, especially for people that have faith in the electoral process, it's especially upsetting, you know, you're electing these people to represent your interests and to fight for you and to see the lack of fight. You know, it's, it, it makes me understand why a lot of people throw up their hands and say, what's the point? Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to take an exhale and take another musical break before we get into the world news and a little bit of good news. Um, Our next track is from one of America's most talented musicians of all times, the incredible Stevie Wonder. He just announced that he was departing from Motown after working for the label for over 50 years. So uh, this track is... Yeah, it's the end of times for real. (laughs) Exactly. It's like Ben... He's been on Motown like his entire life since he was like 13 or something. It's crazy. He was like yeah. or something, little Stevie Wonder, and now he's like, you know what? I Don't you know. even tell, folks. So yeah, um, this track is a collaborative effort and includes contributions from Busta Rhymes and Rhapsody and many other artists. The song is entitled, entitled "Can't Put It in the Hands of Fate." We'll be right back. Don't repeat. 
Many years a slave, took notes from Lapita. You should marvel at the fighting. Feel like Anita, apologize. You denied my people, made our death legal. We all paralegal, gotta defend ourselves when the laws ain't equal. Cops aim lethal, death in cathedrals. Bang, bang, boogie, you could die where anybody Sometimes we gotta find our creative I defeated Father Time Was raised by Mother Nature In the projects, tenement walls Sudden withdrawals A true rebel It's easy to spot the government flaws Mass confusion People in power commit collusion Indoctrinated students I'm the leader of the movement Take lifetimes Trying to duck the school to prison pipeline Disenfranchised Amazing I'm in my right mind Create change Survive, struggle to maintain So many lies within the campaign A damn shame I'm thinking how will we survive When the freedom that we have is a facade Yeah Objection to the rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. So we're going to jump right into our world news story in which Jasmine will be reporting on the latest from Nigeria. Take it away, lady. Okay, so um, if you've been on Twitter and other forms of social media, you've probably seen uh, the end SARS, S-A-R-S hashtag. I know initially when I first saw it, I thought it was referencing the illness. 
but um, on further investigation, SARS is a unit in Nigeria, a police unit, and the acronym stands for Special Anti-Robbery Squad. So just a little bit of background. This is basic from Wikipedia and some other clicking around, like we'll put links in the on our show page. SARS, S-A-R-S, was created in late 1992, and its purpose was to deal with robbery, motor vehicle theft, kidnapping, ca- cattle rustling, so stealing cows, and other crimes that involve firearms. The person who created SARS was the former police commissioner Simeon Danladi Midenda after the murder of Colonel Rindam, who was a colonel in the Nigerian army. He was killed by police officers in Lagos at a checkpoint. So police officers after that murder abandoned their posts in Lagos because soldiers had been dispatched looking for those responsible for the killing. And allegedly, like after the police officers ran off from their posts, violent crime rates rose. So this is according to Medenda. He's saying that is the reason why he created this anti-robbery squad was to address a rise in violent crime because a void was left by police officers leaving their um, positions. Since 1992, however, the SARS unit has been accused of extrajudicial killings, extortion, torture, framing, blackmail, and more. When the SARS squad, when the SARS was created, it was known to operate in secret. Many of the operatives were not allowed to wear police uniforms, publicly carry guns, or have walkie-talkies, and they were often in unmarked vehicles sometimes with no license plates or private plate numbers while they were on duty. So, you know, you have people walking around essentially as like a secret police. So this information is coming from Al Jazeera from the 13th. The name of the article is Thousands of Nigerians Nigerians Demand Police Overhaul for Sixth Day. So last week, young uh, people in Nigeria were mobilizing through social media and staging demonstrations calling for the abolition of the federal special anti-robbery squad, which has long been accused of unlawful arrest, torture, and extrajudicial killing. Um, According to the BBC, one of the things that sparked this latest wave of protest was graphic footage that showed officers from this police unit dragging two men from a hotel in Lagos and shooting one of them in the street. Visitors at a hotel posted on social media the video of what had happened on um, Saturday, October 3rd. So what you see is armed officers of the SARS unit called SARS dragging two limp bodies from the hotel compound into the street and one of, before shooting one of the men. So there's been, once that video came out, that like kind of unleashed the floodgates of other people posting on social media with the hashtag NSARS, stories of their own like abuse and other murders that have happened like at the hands of this this particular unit. 
and the protests have gained a big backing, not only in Nigeria, but also there's famous um, Nigerians in the diaspora around the world that have been supporting it uh, with their social media as well. In the commercial capital of uh, the country, Lagos, several thousand people blocked a major highway. There were also protesters who took to the streets in the actual capital, Abuja, and in the southeastern port cities of Port Harcourt and Uyo, uh, UYO. This past Sunday, the government announced that SARS was being disbanded and its officers would be redeployed to other units. So they're not fired, they just got moved to other parts of the police force. President Muhammadu Buhari insisted that disbanding was only the first step in, quote, extensive police reforms, while Nigeria's police chief, police chief promised to investigate allegations of abuse involving SARS officers. However, many people in Nigeria are saying that the announcement is not enough and they express skepticism because there were previous pledges to improve um, Nigeria's police and those promises were not fulfilled. Protesters have been calling for an independent body to investigate police abuse, according to a list of demands widely shared on social media. And in addition to just like what's, what the police have been doing, the demonstrations are also challenging anger among the youth over unemployment, corruption, and economic mismanagement. So now that, which we sort of see happening here in the US too, it's like the George Floyd protests, like he was not by far the first black person to be shot in the street or to be murdered by the cops in public. But you have like this perfect storm of these long-standing injustices, and you also have a massive economic downturn and a pandemic. Like that's a lot of people are hurting right now, and they've just had enough. So unemployment has jumped significantly. So the economic situation is a trigger. Uh, that's according to um, analyst confidence McCary from the resource research consultancy firm SBM Intelligence. Economic discontent feeds into this resentment against rising police brutality. So on Tuesday, a new unit called the Special Weapons and Tactics Team, or SWAT, has been announced to fill in the gaps after getting rid of SARS. However, a lot of Nigerians on Twitter they feel like this is confirmation that the police are just recreating SARS with a different name. And within an hour after announcing SWAT, protesters started to post news with the hashtag and SWAT instead of SARS. So while the demonstrations have largely been peaceful, there have been instances of violence. And according to the authorities, at least one police officer and civilian were killed during protests in Lagos on Monday. So yeah, so it, that was a bit long, but this is clearly like an ongoing issue, um, not in just Nigeria, but around the world. But um, luckily, like you have more and more like young people and people of other ages too, I've seen clips getting together, taking to the streets, speaking out, 
um, without fear. Well, I'm sure many of them are afraid, but in spite of their fear, like standing up to their government. Yeah, I definitely feel like this is a time for things to change across the world. It's unfortunate that, you know, um, that so many people are going through this. I mean, it's not, it's been going on since the beginning of time, of course, but definitely the young people is not having it in 2020. And I appreciate the fact that they are encouraged to stand up for what they believe in, but it's really awful the way that these murders are happening. Um, and some of the footage that I've seen from over there just looks like pandemonium. It looks really awful when you, when you really think about it, that people are just literally, you know, losing their lives and losing their lives to protest, losing their lives. You know what I mean? Like it's such so many layers to it, but it's all the same thing. Right. And there was, I don't remember her name. Like I'll try to, if I find it, I'll post it. But there was a tweet from someone I believe who was in Nigeria. And apparently there are some people that were blaming the fact that the police were violent on them being poorly paid or on their economic situation. And what that made me think was, you know, these issues, even though in the U.S., like, it's often along racial lines and like the police here are often very well paid, but you, you yeah. see a lot of the same things happening. So it, it struck me because it's like, no matter what the economic situation is of the people enacting the violence and often no matter what their color is, just the state of being in that position of you have the power of life and death over regular people it's going to be abused, whether you pay them well or not, whether it's people all the same color or not. You know, there's a deeper problem there that can't just be explained by, oh, they need a raise or, oh, they're having a difficult time because we see the same things happening regardless of economic standing globally. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that, and that last... Um thing you said Jasmine reminds me even of like the Stanford prison experiment which I know is like there's been like you know controversy over in the results of that with like oh self-selecting people participating and all that but like it is that idea that if you give someone you know the means like that it's that idea of you're you're in charge and you have violent um tools at your disposal in that sort of mindset that that gets people and just psychologically where that leads people. Um, and yeah, and it's the power dynamics uh, really do cross spectrums across the board, um, how that works and subjugating people that you believe that you are allowed to be in control of. Right. And Absolutely. Yeah, like, even and, though, you know, like- hate it, hate it, hate it. What did you Go say, ahead. Teresa? Hate, hate is what? Hate is hate is what I was going to say. You know, hate is hate. When you get into a position where you feel like you can inflict your thoughts, your beliefs or anything, or you have power on other people, you know, here, I feel like a lot of times they try to 
talk this dumb jargon about how police brutality has something to do with training and they don't know how to de-escalate and they get scared and all this stupid bullshit that we all know has nothing to do with that. The fact that you've been given this authority by someone who doesn't even deserve to have authority, you now can inflict your hatred on whatever you're dealing with, whether it's the people that you're policing, your own personal issues, your life, your fear of other people or your ignorance towards other communities. You know, it doesn't matter what it, it boils down to the same thing is it's hate equals hate and giving someone authority to be able to use that for any purpose is really the root of the problem. Yeah. And like even outside of just like hatred, like there's this these protests were obviously sparked by police executing people ex- outside of the justice system. But that's just one aspect of it. Like there were a lot of um, women and also queer people that have been reporting, you know, being roughed up, being bribed, like being pressured into uh, like basically being assaulted by police officers. And I'll never forget when when I was an undergrad, I was in some lecture and the professor was talking about how, you know, being at a border and like one of the border patrol agents took like a liking to some girl that she was traveling with and he just held her and would not stop talking. But you're in this position where just by virtue of their title, you have absolutely no power. You know, if they want to, like they're supposed to be stopping robberies in whether it's Nigeria or it's in Brooklyn, like there are people that go into these jobs not because they want to protect and serve anybody, but because they know if they go into that type of role, they can do all types of foul shit and they will be protected. If that's stealing from people, if that's pressuring random people for sexual favors, if it's bribing people, if it's taking drugs and then selling it yourself, it's like it runs the gamut. And I think some people are uncomfortable facing that, that, you know, you still there, Jasmine? We live not just in this country, but globally, like the forces of order, they have like free reign to do whatever they want. And they know that no matter what happens, the powers that be will stand by them because they see them as being useful for keeping certain populations in check. So yeah, it's, it's not, it's not just any one particular place. And I think it's important for us as Americans to be on top of what's happening in other parts of the world and see how these struggles are all connected. Absolutely. And to leverage these conversations because ultimately it just shows the humanity, you know, worldwide. And if there is a us and them, you know, if there is, obviously there's a clear definition, but whether you identify with, with either side, it just, you know, we have to continue to make noise. Um, about how people are treated and about how these systems are designed to really hurt and destroy everyday people. You know, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm glad they made some kind of, even though it's symbolic, at least there was some sort of movement and I hope that there's going to be more um, concrete results that come from the protests. So solidarity to people fighting in Nigeria and around the world will keep you updated on what comes of this story? Okay, absolutely. Thank you, Jasmine, for bringing that story to the surface. And then for our final segment, 
Uh, Emily, you got some good news for us. I have a couple short updates. And first of all, um, for some reason, I couldn't hear Jasmine at the end. So if I interrupted her at some point and the audience can hear, I apologize. That's my technology wigging out. Um, and also a quick update on the uh, the fracking story we had last week. So today, uh, today we were recording Thursday, October 15th. They had some news happening. Um, there was an activist action. They got covered in the post, um, the New York post and all this stuff. Uh, but they have a media press release on their, uh, no, uh, what is it? No, no NBK pipeline.org website. Um, it says following dramatic shutdown of construction today, North Brooklyn elected officials will rally at pipeline site tomorrow. Um, just a reminder that, Despite massive community opposition right now, corporate utility National Grid is expanding a massive fracked gas transmission pipeline in North Brooklyn. The pipeline is being built predominantly through black, brown, and working class neighborhoods without community consent. Um, So really exciting stuff. Um, The work they're doing, you can find more information on nobkpipeline.org. There's an update there. And then finally, yeah. Cool. And then, um, yes, finally, my quick uh, good news story. Um, So this story comes from an October 11th article on goodnewsnetwork.org titled the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize goes to the world's largest hunger program. The article explains, quote, the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to the world's largest humanitarian organization that feeds the hungry. The World Food Program, or WFP, won the award, quote, for its effort to combat hunger and bettering conditions for peace in conflict-affected areas by seeking to prevent the use of hunger as a weapon. In 2019, the United Nations WFP provided assistance to close to 100 million people in 88 countries who are victims of acute food insecurity and hunger, most of whom suffered because of war and armed conflict, end quote. Um, so thank you to the World Food Group Program and for the important work that it does. If you, the listener, uh, want to find a way to combat hunger in the U.S., which is a really big and important issue, I recommend the nonprofit Feeding America. Its website is feedingamerica.org, and its, quote, mission is to feed America's hungry through a nationwide network of member food banks and engage our country in the fight to end hunger. Awesome. Yeah. Good job, World Food Program. Keep up the great work. All right, folks. So that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, on Spotify, or anywhere you can find iTunes podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of the day comes from Labyrinth a British singer, songwriter, rapper, and record producer who just won an Emmy for his production on the score of HBO drama series Euphoria. This is No Ordinary. We will see you next week. Bye. 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 Have a good week, everybody. Oh, this No Ordinary Love yeah, yeah, me in all you now.
this unconditional devotion. Got my heart so wide open that my spirit like a holy ghost. All this, all this love, no ordinary love. Show you how I'm feeling. 